do your circumstances determine your attitude? Or does the way that you look at your circumstances determine your attitude? There's a big difference. If your circumstances determine your attitudes, then your attitude, your mindset, your feelings are going to be determined by what circumstances you find yourself in, whether they're good or bad. But if the way that you view your circumstances is what determines and shapes everything else, that puts everything in a completely different light. How you look at them, your outlook, your mindset. And so as we get into the letter to the Philippians today, and as we look at this the next few months, I want us to be thinking about this as kind of a, a core theme behind everything else. Because Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, not while he is uh, sitting at some beach somewhere, uh, drinking out of a coconut and enjoying life, he is in prison in Rome. He is imprisoned as he is writing this, and yet this is a letter of joy. Oftentimes it's characterized, or if you see a, a, a study on the book of Philippians, they might call it the, the letter of joy or something along those lines because it's a huge major theme in this book. In fact, the theme of joy or rejoicing is found in Philippians They count that theme 16 times. And the letter is not all that long. Uh, It is four pages in my Bible. It's 104 verses. And yet this theme of joy or rejoicing shows up 16 different times. So we could call it that. I could have given the series a subtitle having to do with joy or rejoicing. But I remember back when I was growing as a Christian and I would hear this message about, okay, Philippians, you need to be joyful, you need to rejoice. And maybe it was because of my lack of growth or my lack of understanding on this, but it felt to me sometimes like I was just being told, you know, just be happy. Just have joy. Come on, be joyful. Come on. And what I realized that we need to do, what I needed to understand, is the reason underneath why Paul can be joyful in the circumstances that he is in. And therefore, why we can have a different attitude, a different feeling, a different way of interpreting life, whether our lives are going really great at the moment or whether they are really not going great at the moment. And as I looked at Philippians, as I'm thinking through it, studying it, looking at this, I noticed like a few things. Again, the circumstance, Paul is in prison. This time, it's, it's not a dungeon-type prison. He's probably in some sort of house arrest. We'll talk more about the background as we go in the weeks to come. Uh, but there's still a prison, house arrest that involves literal chains, that involves literal Roman guards. And he has been in this circumstance probably going on four years, maybe two years in Judea, and then he appeals to Caesar and he's sent to Rome, and he's probably there around two years at this point. So he has been confined, he has been in lockdown here for, for years as he is writing this letter, this, this epistle of thankfulness and joy. But Paul was not a, he's not writing these things, talking about rejoicing because he is some kind of sappy, hopeless optimist. You know, that he just can't see the negative and just always look on the rosy side of things. I argue that Paul is a realist. And we're going to see this in the letter because he even says he doesn't know how this is going to end. 
it's a house arrest, like I said, in chains with a guard, and also a house arrest that he realizes there's a real chance will end with him having his head cut off, him being executed. So he is a realist, I would say not an optimist, but if you are a realist that knows the Lord, if you're a realist that factors the Lord into everything in life and how you look at it, and you know his word, you know his promises, you know your destiny because of Jesus, that's a realism that changes everything because God and his promises are very real. So this letter, we're going to look at the theme in this letter of having an attitude shaped by an outlook in Christ. And I notice almost every section that we go through, I think we'll be able to see that. How Paul is able to have his attitude that is different than his circumstances would dictate, but because he's letting his outlook, his way of viewing things be shaped, through and by Jesus Christ. So let's read together the passage for today. We'll read the whole thing at first. It's Philippians chapter 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's walk through this and try to understand, first of all, what Paul is writing to the Philippians, and then also what is, what is God saying to us through this as well. So some of these uh, points are going to get cut to the end as far as application to us, but we'll be looking at, first of all, what it, was Paul saying to the Philippians and realizing how these things apply to us as well. So the first point I want to give you, we'll be aiming towards this, is that God joins us together for an eternal purpose. God joins us together for an eternal purpose. Let's look at the intro here again. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So in ancient letters, instead of putting, uh, signing the name at the end, they would put it right up front at the beginning, which actually makes a lot of sense. So the authors of this, are uh, Paul and Timothy. Uh, Paul's really the primary author that wrote this. Timothy is his apostolic helper, his apostolic assistant. And Paul is also going to be sending Timothy to the Philippians, to the city of Philippi. 
And so he's letting him know that, hey, this is from Timothy as well. He agrees with this. So the city of Philippi, the map here, and you see Italy, you see Greece, and what's now Turkey, which in the old days was Asia Minor. Uh, but Philippi is located uh, right up in Greece or Macedonia in that area. We'll talk more about some of the background later. I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 16 for background about this. Paul planted the church there when he was traveling in his second missionary journey and told uh, people about Jesus Christ, and many turned to him. And read Acts 16. There's some great uh, historical records there. And planted church there probably about 50 A.D., and, but at this point, Paul is writing this from Rome. Because at the end of the book of Acts, uh, Paul is, he's arrested, he spends time in, in Judea, and then later on he, is, uh, he appeals to Caesar in a ship to Rome, where he is now in, under house arrest. And we're going to see he's waiting to see how this turns out. He's hopeful, but he doesn't know. This could end in his execution. So these are the places he's writing from and where he is writing to. In this passage, we see that he refers to uh, himself. He says to all the, uh, well, he says Paul and Timothy, and he says servants of Christ Jesus. So he doesn't start this saying, I am here your Lord and master, you better listen to me. I mean, he is an apostle, he does have apostolic authority, but he's saying that he's a servant. He's a servant to the one true master who is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. And this word here actually can be translated, it's more ac- literally slave. They're slaves of Jesus Christ, and he is okay with that, being the slave, the servant of the true master, Jesus Christ. And he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, depending on what background that you're from, you might, when you hear the word saint, you might think, well, that's just a few certain people that get to be elevated to be, you know, St. Francis or something like that. Those are the special, those are the, the super, super Christians that have done amazing things. And in in Roman Catholic theology, uh, not everyone is a saint. Some are set apart. I read a story of the great preacher uh, Harry Ironside and said that when one time he was speaking at a conference and he was on a train riding back and it was a a journey of several days and he was traveling with a group and there was a, a group of nuns, Catholic nuns that were on the train. And they started talking, and he introduced him uh, after time to them as, uh, Hi, I'm I'm St. Harry. And then explained to him that actually when Scripture talks about saints, it's not talking about a few extra special Christians, that every born-again Christian is considered a saint. It means someone that is set apart, someone that that is made holy. And so if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says this is, you are a saint. This is your identity. You have been sanctified in Christ already the moment that you trusted Jesus Christ. So he is writing here to to all of the Christians who are at the city of Philippi and says, along with the overseers and the deacons. The overseers and the deacons, these are the two main offices of the church. The overseers, another word that he uses for this would be elders uh, what we consider today pastors would fill that role of overseers and elders. So in our church, Pastor Nick and I, we oversee the, uh, we're entrusted with overseeing the, the doctrine and the spiritual life of the church. And we're assisted and work with the, with the deacons. 
Now, deacon means servant, and so in Scripture, a lot of times, it can use the same word, and it can refer to uh, just, well, any Christian hopefully is a servant. We're all supposed to be servants of Jesus Christ, but then there are also uh, the men that are called to be uh, overseers and deacons in the specific offices of elders and deacons. So Paul is writing this to the leaders of the church, but not just the leaders, but to all of the members of the church of Philippi. And he gives them the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we go into verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So this next section is really a section of thanks. This whole part here is the intro of this letter. And so you have the beginning part where he says who it's from, who it's to, a section of thanks, and a section where he talks about his prayers for them. So even though he's in prison, it'd be really easy not to have thankfulness, to have a thankful heart to be complaining. He is filled with thanks to them. And he says, I thank uh, my God in remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. That's the first occurrence of, of joy in this letter. We said it appears many times. And then he gives a reason. Because of your partnership, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So, think of why he is thankful. And he talks about their, their partnership in the gospel. He's going to say this here when we get to verse 7. He's going to talk about uh, being partakers with him of grace. Uh, these words are both uh, translated um, from similar Greek words. And so the word for partnership here, uh, it's from a Greek word that's koinonia. And this word, it's an important word in the Bible. It gets translated a few different ways. Uh, some Bibles, maybe yours, says fellowship, which if you really understand what that means, that, that really works well, that this is not just fellowship in the sense of, you know, we're just hanging out, uh, shooting the breeze, you know, drinking some coffee, but you're having this, well, other translations translated as, as partnership or participation. And it talks about a shared experience that they have together. And so Paul is thanking them because they have been partners. They are, they are joined together in Christ. They're together in the, the universal church, in the big, the big body of Christ. And they're also uh, partners in this mission together. Sometimes a word would be used of a financial partnership. You know, an investor or somebody that they're in a business endeavor together. And Paul, they're not in a business endeavor, but their, their mission in the gospel, they've been united by the gospel, and they've been given a mission to take the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, to the whole world. And one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Philippians is Paul giving thanks to them also for a financial gift that he does, that the Philippians have given to him to support him while he's in prison, so he could have food, uh, so that he could uh, pay for the rented uh, house arrest, you know, apartment or wherever he is. Uh, because back in the day, the government didn't take care of that for you. So he's thankful for them. They have, they're, they're united. They're on the same team. They're working together for something. And we're going to come back. We'll talk about verse 6 in the next point. 
But I said in verse 7, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all. And when he talks about this, when he says, It's right for me to, uh, to feel this way, as we read that in English, it sounds like it's about his feelings, about his emotions. But what's interesting is that word in Greek, it's phroneo, and it's used of, it can be translated different ways. It can be used as, translated as mindset, a frame of reference for life, a worldview, a way of evaluating the world around us. It can include emotions, but the focus is really on the mind. And I thought it was just interesting because I think it's one of the uh, examples that I see that Paul is viewing these things through a certain mindset, through a certain way of viewing the world, of thinking about things. And it influences the way that he, he thinks about these believers in Philippi, who you can tell he, he loves them deeply. He has his affection set upon them. He cares about them. And part of it is because he knows that it's not just about, oh, do we have some things in common? As far as, do we have common interests? We both like, we both like playing golf or do this or that, or the same TV shows. They don't have those things back then. But that's what we tend to do these days. We think, oh, we can get along with people if we have, uh, or we're connected in those ways, or we go to the same sports thing, whatever it is. But he was viewing in a different way that what's most important, what connects them, is that they're in, in Jesus Christ together. They're connected by the gospel. And they are on the same team commissioned by God to go forth and make disciples, to bring glory to God, to evangelize, to disciple, to make an eternal difference in people's lives. So if we think about reasons that we can have to change our mindset, one thing that we can realize is that your life has a mission that matters for eternity. That if you're just thinking that your life is here to just get what you can out of it, enjoy, get some pleasure, and and then you die, and that's it, that's very shallow, and, and you can't really find purpose and meaning in that. But when you know the Lord and you realize that we exist for him and that finding Jesus Christ, being saved, finding him as your treasure is what gives us, us the most uh, happiness, us the, the change in life, and it brings him the most glory. Now you have a purpose that is from your creator and a purpose that is going to matter for eternity in your life and the lives of all those that you affect. Whether it's your family members, your, your neighbors, whether it is working, partnering with missionaries around the world to bring the gospel to people in some of the hardest places, lives that are changed not just for this life, but for eternity, heaven instead of hell, reconciliation with God instead of alienation and hostility and condemnation forever. That's a huge mission. So we need to view ourselves as as having that type of fellowship, that type of participation, being partakers in the sense of a a co-participant in this, in the gospel and in this mission. And we have this, and it's not an independent mission. You share this mission with other Christians. You are part of, let's say, a team with an eternal purpose, a body, a uh, a group. That's what the, the church is. We are part of this team that we have a purpose together. 
And think of how, you know, teams, let me use that metaphor, you know, they work together, they're working in the same direction for a shared goal, whether you're on a sports team or whether you're part of the invasion force for for D-Day or something, you are part of something bigger than yourself individually. And we need to have that frame of reference, that mindset as Christians, that we're not in this just as individuals, but we're in this together. And that's the type of fellowship that we're talking about. So think about when we talk about fellowship, again, that word for partnership is often translated fellowship. Yeah, that's an important thing, but sometimes we talk about Christian fellowship, it's a good thing. All that we think about sometimes is, well, that means, you know, having coffee, you know, maybe having donuts, and maybe some small talk. But the fellowship that God is talking about here, this type of partnership, well, it's more like fellowship of the rings type fellowship, okay, where you are united together in this great common purpose. And think of that book, you know, and the TV series is on, so it, I feel like I have liberty to talk about uh, Fellowship, Lord of the Rings a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the, Tolkien's first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, you have this diverse group. You have hobbits, and you have a few humans, and then you have an elf and a dwarf, and, and they are on this mission together. And it's not about donuts. They've got to take a different type of ring. And the, the, the fate of Middle-earth hangs in the balance. We are united together. And there might be people that are completely different that you wouldn't hang out with normally otherwise, but you realize you have a commonality in Christ that supersedes all of this and a mission together. So if you want real fellowship, if you want real uh, connection with people, it's not just about you know, having some coffee here and, and there and small talk. Be part of a ministry team. Be part of something where you're doing something together for the glory of God. Maybe it means volunteering here and getting involved somewhere. Be part of a small group. Maybe a small group that you're actively trying to encourage and help each other. Maybe you're finding a ministry to do as a group as well. Be partner in your, in your giving. We are partner with missionaries. If you give to the church, uh, 20 cents of every dollar goes to missionaries that are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Be involved in outreach, helping people, serving just around you. And the more that you can partner with other people and do that together, you will find that you have a, a shared experience and a bond that is far beyond anything else. So God joins us together for an eternal purpose that was true of Paul and the Philippians, and it's true and should be true of us as believers as well if we're doing things right. Second point, I want to look at this just from verse 6 and take comfort in this, have this change your mindset God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. You have an eternal purpose, and we're going to see you're also saved with an eternal promise. And one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things that we start and we don't finish. And maybe you can think of projects around the house that you have and that have been started and who knows if they'll ever get finished. But God, when he starts something, he finishes it and he brings it all the way to completion. And our salvation, think what he is talking about here, this is God's work. It is started by him. Our salvation is, it's initiated, it's began by him. He is the one that got things going. He died on the cross. He worked in your heart 
to start moving you towards him when you were still hard-hearted and in rebellion running away from him? And if he had left you just on your own, I know we talk about free will, what does that mean? But if he had left you purely to what you wanted to do, you would have just ran away from him forever. But he intervenes, he starts working in your heart, he calls you to him. He regenerates us. He changes our hearts. Salvation is from him from the beginning. It's from him all the way through. In small group, we're going to be reading the book Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. One of the important things that that book gets across is that grace is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. It's not that God saves you and now it's up to you to make sure that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps after this. That even your sanctification, your change in life, all of this is by God's grace. So it starts from him, it's from him in the beginning, in the middle, and all the way to the end. And he will complete this. He will save you finally and firmly in the end. It is a guaranteed thing. Our salvation is not done yet. We still sin. We're not transformed yet into the image of Christ. Well, we're, our bodies are still breaking down. There's more to salvation than just this. There is a future that God promises, and it is a certain future. Think about it this way. Um, Use the illustration of a bridge here. We break down uh, this verse, and you can see it past, present, and future aspects of our salvation. He who began a good work in you, this is the beginning, and he doesn't just start us off, and then after this, you know, hey, you got your seed money, now it's up to you. After that, he will bring it. He'll be faithful. He'll, be, he'll bring it all the way to the end, to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Beginning, middle, and the end. Sometimes in Scripture, we can see salvation talked about as past or present or future. There are verses that you can look at that some say that you, you have been saved. Some that actually say you are being saved. And some that say you will be saved. And that's not a contradiction. Those are all real stages in our salvation. And so I think you can connect that here. The past, you have been saved, and he will bring it. You are being saved, and in the future, you, you will be saved. Now, this does not mean that you can't say that you're saved now. You already are if you have turned and trusted Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, relying on him and his sacrifice fully, to get you into heaven, not your good works. Okay? But at the beginning, first stages of this, there's other things, but regeneration. He gives us a new heart. He uh, has this, this change that starts in the inside of us that happens when we're uh, trusting him as Savior, coming to faith. And then justification, that at that instant, God also declares you to be righteous in his sight. That's what justification means. It's, it's like a, a courtroom term of a judge saying, I declare you to be innocent. More than that, I declare you to be perfectly righteous because Jesus has taken your condemnation on the cross and you have been given credit for his perfect life, his perfect law-keeping. So that's the beginning. But now if you've been saved, we're in the present aspect and a big part of that is what's called progressive sanctification. You are a saint. You were made a saint in God's sight the moment that you trusted Jesus. But now there's a process of the Holy Spirit 
actually transforming you from the inside out. Because salvation is not just about getting you to heaven. It's also about transforming you into the man or woman that he created you to be. And the Bible says that your destiny, believer, is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. To be made like him, ethically in our heart. And so, if you have been a Christian for some time, you, for real, you will have noticed change that is happening from the inside out. Some areas of your life may be better than others. But you also realize, wow, I got a ways to go. And the more you realize, you might think you're halfway across the bridge and you realize, well, maybe I'm not. I got, I got more ways to go as far as God cleaning me up and, and working on me. And that's never going to be finished in this life. It's a progress. We're always going to have sin in our hearts and our lives uh, until the final end. And so the last is, is glorification. You can talk about it that way, that there will come a day when all of our sin is, is removed from our life. You won't have these things in your heart that pull you down where you want to sin, you want to do the wrong thing. This renovation of your heart will be complete. That doesn't happen in this life. It'll happen uh, when Christ returns. That's why if you have a loved one that has passed away, I can tell you that they are, if they died in Christ, that they are with the Lord. Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But also their salvation at this point is actually not absolutely complete yet either. Say, what do you mean, Pastor? Um, Now, in one sense, they, I think, are are done with their sin, but there's more to go because it says this happens, it's completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a reference to when Christ returns. That hasn't happened yet. But when Christ returns... One of the things that happens is that the dead in Christ are raised to new life. This is the resurrection. And so our salvation isn't final, final, final until that has taken place. That we are reunited with our bodies, are refurbished, are recreated glorified bodies that will spend uh, eternity with the Lord on the new earth. So there's still more to look forward to. But it is promised. It is, it is locked in place. It is guaranteed by the power and the promise of God. Do you think about a verse like this? I think Paul could not write this verse if he believed that there could be some genuine Christians who could lose their salvation. If you believe that there could be genuine Christians, not fakers, but genuine Christians that would lose their salvation, how do you write that he is sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion? You have to say, I hope he's going to bring it to completion. Or for a lot of you, he's going to bring it to completion if you don't screw it up. But that's not what he writes. He is sure of this. And I believe there are many other scriptures that back this up as well. So this talks about your perseverance as a believer. You have security, and you have security because God is going to cause you to persevere all the way to the end. And it's his work. He gets the glory for it working in and through you for this. Now, if you're reading this and you're looking at it in context, I could see someone, if they believe that you could lose your salvation, they might say, well, maybe that's not what this means. Maybe it's not about salvation because he's talking about, in verse 5, he says, thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now 
And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And he's talking about their partnership, maybe, and saying, hey, you guys were helpful in the beginning, and I know that you know, you, God is going to work through you to help me out all the way to the end. And I guess that's a way you could try to interpret this if you didn't want to uh, acknowledge that you, genuine believers don't lose their salvation. And I think that's not what it means. I'll give you just quick three reasons. Um, you'll have to look into this more if this is a question that you have. Uh, but first of all, the translation, he says that uh, God began a good work in you. And though it could be translated among you, but in you is a more fitting translation in the context. Also, if you compare it to Galatians 3.3, 3, uses some of the same words as far as beginning your salvation and being perfected or completed. Uh, it means transformed into the image of Christ. And so that would indicate that this is about salvation, not just a partnership in ministry. But I think especially saying that the completion is at the day of Jesus Christ, which is at his return. And that doesn't make sense if you're just talking about the Philippians, you know, helping him out financially right now. That, no, this is something for all of us as believers that goes all the way to the end when Christ returns and believers are resurrected from the dead. So, to have your mindset changed to realize that God, he has been, he is, and he will always be at work in you for your final salvation. You ever have anyone that gave up on you? That's tough. They believe in you for a while and then they just they give up or they move on. God is not like that. He finishes what he starts. I want to say too, the moral of this isn't just, well, finish what you start. So no matter what it is, if you started it, you've got to finish. I get these emails from Netflix you know, telling me, don't forget to finish. The floor is lava. It's like, first of all, Netflix, don't be telling me what to do. And a lot of your shows, Netflix, aren't really uh, worth my time to finish. So God finishes everything that he starts because he has the wisdom and the foresight to only start these things that are valuable enough to finish. We start a lot of dumb things, and sometimes we need the wisdom to know, is this something that we need to complete and we should? Or sometimes... We need to quit something strategically because it's a waste of our time or it's getting in the way of something that actually is more important. God knows the difference and therefore he never has to, uh, to do that, but we do. And of course, I always want to ask you, has God begun a good work in you? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you, have you started this process? And if you haven't yet, that door remains open to you. That while we live on this life, you have opportunity to come to him. In the last three verses, 9 through 11, I want to draw out this point, that God is transforming us for his eternal praises. Let's read this again. And it is my prayer. This is his prayer. Okay, so think of what he is praying for these believers? Are these things that we pray for? Or do we just pray for, you know, just health and safety? And those can be good things, but think about what he prays for for others. In my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is part of the kind of the in-between, the, the present part of the Christian life, the on-the-bridge part, being transformed, being made more like Jesus Christ. We, growth, that we're growing, but we're not there yet. Any Christian that says, well, I'm just done growing. I mean, I've gone to church for a while. I've gone to Sunday school class, and anything I've learned, needed to know, I already know it, and I'm as, this is as good as it's going to be. That's not how it is. There's always more growth for us. And I'm glad that I think as a church we get that. That's the mindset of, of people here. So Paul prays for the Philippians to grow in three different ways. By the way, these verses are all one giant verse in the original Greek language. But he prays for them to grow in, first of all, in love. Notice he says that, they, that your love may abound more and more. So not just that you would have some love, he acknowledges that they have love, but that it would abound, that it would keep growing, and that it would keep growing more and more and more. So Christian, no matter how much love you have, it's always good to keep growing in love, to keep having more of it, to keep adding on. You can't have too much love, okay? Rock bands always need more cowbell, and Christians always need more love. So we want to keep growing in love. But we also want to grow in knowledge and discernment. He says, grow more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is important because there's a lot of people inside that will love. Of course, love is important. But is our love shaped by truth? Is our love shaped by knowledge? If, we, if love is wanting what is genuinely best for people, do we learn and understand what actually is best for other people? So that our love isn't just sentimentality. Our love isn't just this, this gooey blob that we want to have for, for people, but it's a love that, is, uh, that actually helps people. You think back in the day, there were procedures that doctors did that they thought uh, were really helpful. I read that before penicillin, sometimes they would give mercury to people to treat them. Like, whoa, that's a bad, that's a really bad idea. But they didn't know any better. And a lot of what happens today in the world, I think sometimes people think that they are loving other people by giving them what they think they need, but it's not shaped by the word of God by the author, the creator of life that knows what we really need. And so we end up just giving people you know, mercury instead of the, the actual penicillin that will actually help them. So we need to have it shaped by God. Undiscerning love is not a good thing. That can become, it can become counterproductive. You say to your, well, I love my kids so much. I've got to let them do whatever they want. My kid loves playing in traffic. Who am I to stand in the way of my child playing in traffic? That's not love. Love means doing what is genuinely best because you genuinely care about them. An application for this also is to approve of the right things, that you may approve of what is excellent. And so much what is going on in the world today is wanting us to give approval to things that are very much not excellent and sometimes it's not even just a matter of it's second best, but things that are actually 
the complete opposite of what is best for people. And there's pressure on people to approve it, to love it, to support it. Put it on your Facebook page, wear the pin, wear the jersey, whatever it is. And it's the complete opposite of what God said is actually good and true and helpful to people. The word for excellent doesn't just mean good, but that which is of most value. We need to learn what is most valuable as opposed to what's just peripheral or secondary. And there will be an evaluation at the end. How will your love towards others be evaluated by God on the day of Christ? So we're to grow in love, knowledge and discernment so that our love is channeled in the right way. And then also he mentions the fruit of righteousness, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. When you're saved, you are given credit for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That happens instantly, and you get that in full the moment you're saved. That's a huge blessing. And then in that progress, you know, going over the bridge of life, you are being transformed, and so you're having more personal righteousness, your, your ethical righteousness. You're being changed from the inside out. So instead of being a terrible, awful person who's a, a jerk to others and selfish, you're being made more like Jesus Christ, who is the opposite of all those things. And that's going to result in things that you do, not just things that you feel, but actions where you love other people and you help other people. The fruit of righteousness that actually comes from a heart that is being changed by Jesus Christ. So we need to grow in these things. It's not just about knowing the good, but it's about doing the good as well. So do we pray for what Paul prayed for? Do we pray that for other Christians? Do we pray that for each other as a church? Do we pray that for our kids? Do we ask God to help us with that himself, for ourselves? The fact that Paul prays for these things means that he expects that God is going to answer those prayers and that God is going to help. And what a comfort that is in our worldview. Again, it's not just God saved you, And now you better grow, you better do all these things in your own power. He's praying because God, by the Holy Spirit, and he uses the word of God, he uses other people, but God is the one that is working in us to change us, to put more love in our hearts, to give us more knowledge and discernment, to give us more fruit that comes from a righteous life. It's not from us, it's from him. And if it's from him, that means that he receives all of the glory through this. So as we change our frame of reference, realize that God is at work in you. He's at work transforming you to love the good, to know the good, and to do the good. And this is all for the greatest purpose that there is, for the glory of Jesus Christ, for his praise. And having that mindset truly changes everything, regardless of your circumstances. Let's pray. And God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word helps us to view our lives in a completely different way. So work through your word, by your spirit, to change our mindset, our view of life, and our view, therefore, of our circumstances. And because of that, because we can be realistic that if you are in the picture, and if you are at work, Lord God, then no matter the hard times that we go through, Lord God, we can have joy. We can rejoice because everything leads to your praise and glory. 
and that is so worth it. Thank you for saving us in Jesus Christ and saving us all the way to the end. You are a great and faithful God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.